Welcome, welcome to the Hill Church Podcast. So this last Sunday we talked about Luke 17, which is all about Christ being king. So first we kind of talked about some of the kings of the past, get a little historical context. So for example, you have the Assyrian Empire. We talked about them for a little bit. They reigned for uh, several centuries and they were actually very brutal. They conquered many other countries and they led them captive and then enslaved them. We talked about Babylon, who's the next major empire to follow. And we talked about Nebuchadnezzar and how he took over Jerusalem and then led the Israelites captive for 70 years in Babylon until the Persians came along, Cyrus the Great, did allow Israel to go back to the land and reestablish Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, he was also a, a great conqueror, and the Persians, they reigned from 550 B.C. to 330 B.C. Um, following them was the Greeks with Alexander the Great. He probably took over the most amount of territory uh, up to that point. So these conquerors were um, very powerful. They were very ruthless. They a captured nations against their will. They took the inhabitants of those nations captive and enslaved them. And we have now, uh, during Christ's day, when he was on earth, the Roman Empire was the dominating empire, and they had Israel uh, subdued. They were oppressive towards Israel. They did allow Israel to exist as a people, but they ruled over them and with oftentimes a lot of brutality. So when kings would come to conquer and they would come to set up their kingdoms, it would be through subduing, it would be through a great force, massive armies, and it would be against the will of the people. So that's a little bit of historical context. And then we have the context as far as like the Jewish mindset. So the Jews, they had a certain understanding of the king of Israel that would come from David, the Messiah that would come, and how he would come. So they were looking for a king to come and to conquer, probably much like these other kings and nations had conquered, but on behalf of Israel and set Israel up as the dominating nation on earth that would rule over all the other nations. And they knew from the Old Testament scriptures that the king would be from David, uh, there's a promise that was given to David that from his body, the king would come and establish his kingdom and it would be established forever. They knew that the king would be a king of a physical kingdom. There really was no concept of some kind of spiritual kingdom where the, the Messiah rules in the hearts of the people. That wasn't much of a thought. It, it was literally a physical kingdom that they expected because that's what was prophesied in Isaiah 2. It describes the kingdom as coming from out of Zion and coming from and being set up in Jerusalem. They also knew that this kingdom that was coming would be characterized by peace and righteousness. In Isaiah 9, it describes the kingdom of being one of peace and also justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's Isaiah 9. And lastly, the kingdom would come with great signs and wonders. This is going to be important as we get into Luke 17, but in Joel chapter 2, 30-31, it says that I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke to sun. The sun should be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the awesome 
day of the Lord when he comes. So they expected great signs and wonders and conquering and power and subduing the Roman Empire and other nations and reigning as king. That's what they were looking for, and they kind of had good reason for it. And so they asked this question in verse 20 of Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. They were asking, hey, when is this kingdom come? going to come? Because here Jesus has been proclaiming himself as king. He sent his disciples out to the nation of Israel to say, listen, the kingdom is here, the king is here, and they offered the kingdom to Israel. And um, that offer was rejected. And so here the Pharisees are saying, listen, if you're the king, show us the kingdom. Just show us the kingdom. And Christ's response is very interesting. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now, the, the tense there in the Greek is in the present tense. So Jesus is, is literally saying the kingdom is not coming right now in ways that can be observed. Jesus knew the prophecy in Joel that there would be great signs and wonders when the kingdom is established. He's saying it's not going to happen yet. Right now, the kingdom's not coming in that way. Nor will they say, look, here it is and there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or another translation is the kingdom of God is within you. So basically the point is make, Jesus is making is this. He's saying, listen, I'm not coming like the other kings of the past, just conquering against people's will. That's not how I work. I'm coming, but first, I'm coming as a king, but first I must be accepted as your king. I must rule in your heart as your king. And those who embrace me as their king in their hearts, they are the ones that will be in the physical kingdom when I set it up. See, Jesus, he comes in a completely different way. So this kingdom that Jesus brings, it starts with a spiritual aspect. It starts with people that <clears throat> accept him as their king, submit to him as their king in their hearts. And all those that do will enter the physical kingdom when Christ sets that up. So that's what he's saying. He's basically saying, you know what, I don't rule in your heart. You are asking where the kingdom is, and then you will believe that I'm the king. But no, it's the other way around. First, you need to believe that I'm the king and submit to me as your king. And then I will bring the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Don't go to follow after them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus is saying, listen, it's not going to go down like you think it's going to go down, where I am just going to come and implement the kingdom with great power and signs and wonders and subdue. That's not going to happen. It's going to happen this way. First, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected by you. But that is going to be the cross. It's going to be a payment for the sins of the world. And those that repent and trust in Jesus as their Lord, Savior, and King enter the spiritual kingdom. And then later, he will come again. And when he comes again, it won't be to conquer and make people submit to him as King by force. Oh, no. He will come a second time and he, all those that are part of the spiritual kingdom, he will gather to be a part of the spirit, to the part of the physical kingdom. And when he comes the second time, everybody will know it. Just like you see lightning flashing, and everybody in the town knows and sees it at the same time. In the same way, when he comes the second time, everybody will know it. So here's how the spiritual kingdom is going to be built. First, Jesus is going to die 
on the cross and rise from the dead. And then the gospel, the good news that anybody who repents and trusts in Jesus and his death on the cross on their behalf and, and in his resurrection, anybody that believes and trusts that Jesus did that in their place for their sin as his, their substitute, they are forgiven. And that payment is applied to them. And they become a child of God. And they, at that time, enter the spiritual uh, kingdom of God. So as the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit convicts hearts, people repent and trust in Christ, they become a part of that spiritual kingdom. They submit to Christ as the king of their hearts and the king of their lives. And every person that does that enters into that spiritual kingdom. And so the, the apostles, they go out and they preach the kingdom. And people come to believe, and those people preach the kingdom, and others come to believe. And it's been now 2,000-something years, and the spiritual kingdom is being built. And then Jesus will come a second time, uh, yet in the future, but he will come to gather those that are part of the spiritual kingdom. They will be a part of the physical kingdom he sets up, and he will judge those that have rejected him. So, Jesus goes on to describe the second coming now. And he says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying, being given into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. So when Jesus comes for the second time, there will be many people on earth that are living life, having rejected him, and really they've made themselves kings of their own life. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving into marriage, living life how they want. And Christ will come back. And just like in the days of Noah, you know, Noah was not a king that reign, subdued those people in his day against their will. He didn't do that. Um, Noah was saved by the ark and the rest were judged. And the same way Christ comes back in the second coming, those that trust in him, like Noah did and his family, they are part of the spiritual kingdom. They will be brought into the physical kingdom that Christ sets up, and the rest will be, will be judged. Christ then referenced the judgment of Sodom. He said, likewise, just as it is in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day when Lot entered out, went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So Jesus is saying, listen, be very careful by having one foot in the world and one foot in, you know, the spiritual kingdom. You know, following God when it's convenient, but the rest of the time just kind of living according to the ways of the world. Uh, Lot's wife is sort of representative of that. God told Lot and his family to flee from the city that is under judgment. Don't look back. But she looked back. Part of her heart was still valuing the city. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night, during the second coming, there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. So there will be some people that are part of the spiritual kingdom that have come to Christ and surrendered their hearts to Him and made Him their king in their hearts. Those will be taken and the others that have 
not done that will be left and there will be judgment there. And so then they asked him, they said, where, Lord? And I really think Jesus didn't answer the question. He made this statement, though. He said, where the corpse is, there other vultures will gather. This was a Jewish adage, which basically meant that if you see one vulture circling around in the sky, it doesn't mean that there's a corpse somewhere necessarily. But if you see several of them, there probably is. That's an indication there's a corpse there somewhere. In the same way, Jesus is saying, when you see several signs of my second coming, that's when I will be coming. I'll be coming imminently at that point. Uh, And those signs, you can look them up there in Matthew 24. They are in Revelation from chapter 4 on, um, signs of his second coming. But that's what Jesus' point is there. So I was left, as I studied this chapter, I was left with two questions. One is, what does it mean to have a king? You know, I, I, and I kind of admitted, and I, I think maybe most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we would admit that um, we don't have much of a reference point for this, at least in the West. We don't have kings. We don't know what it means to relate to a king, to have a loyalty to a king or a love for a king. So what does it mean to have a king? That was one question I had. And the second question I had, what does a surrendered, a life surrendered to Jesus as king look like? Practically, what does that look like where Jesus reigns in our lives as our king? And I'll be honest with you, I'm still growing in this area. I feel like I don't really have a handle on what it means to, for Jesus to be the king of my life. I'm still working this out. But here's what I came up with as I looked at these ideas in Scripture. What does it mean to have a king? First of all, Jesus is our authority. He isn't a helper to our lives. His word isn't good advice we go to sometimes. He is the authority. And his word is our authority. And that's a very different idea. So therefore, you know, the things that are comforting or helpful from his word, wonderful. But the things that are hard and the things we don't understand, the the teachings and truths that are hard to accept, those are our authority too. That's, that's what it means to have a king, is he is our authority. And Jesus, he came in Matthew 28, he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is the authority. Secondly, a king makes decisions. He is the decision maker in the land. In the same way, all my decisions belong to Jesus. I don't own my own life. I don't rule my own life. My decisions, I take to Jesus. And I take to the word and I, and I look in the word and I find out, what do you say in your word, God, that has to do with this decision I have to make? You know, so if I'm moving, here's an example I gave. You know, if, I, if you're moving, you know, well, what does God's word say about that particular situation? Well, I know from God's word he wants me to be a part of a group of believers that I'm investing in and they're building me up. So wherever I move, is there a biblical church I can pl- get plugged into? right? That's not typically how we think of our decisions, at least me. I think, you know, what's life going to be like there? Is there going to be, you know, family around? Uh, If it's for a job, how much money will I make? Do the benefits outweigh the cons? All those kinds of things. But to take these, my decisions and go to God's word and say, what do you say in your word that affects this decision or informs this decision? That's what it means to really have Jesus as king. And then another aspect of having Jesus as king is that we obey his commands. Uh, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. It's John 15. All right, so that leads to that second major question. What does a life surrendered Jesus look like? So here's what I did. I took five commands. Because I think a life surrendered Jesus really is, is a life that understands what Jesus' commands are and then lives those out. 
And the way you live out his commands is understanding his reason for the command, what that command protects us from, and then believing a promise related to that command. That's what a life surrendered to Jesus looks like. So I took a few of Christ's commands. I took five. And I looked at what the command was, what it protects us from, and what a promise is that we can believe that enables us to live out the command. Okay, so I took some of the hardest commands I could think of uh, that, that God gives us. So first, to give generously. 2 Corinthians 8, we're told that we are to excel in the act of generous giving. Um, well, there's a promise in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, that helps us to live that out. It says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When we think about how Christ made himself poor and gave up his life for us so we can be rich with forgiveness and eternal life, that enables us to give financially out of gratitude for what we have been given. Second, sharing the gospel. That's a hard command, isn't it? I mean, when I go to share the gospel, you know, Jesus being the king of my life, he gives a command, share the gospel. That's hard. I don't want to mess it up. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. I don't want to push them away. I'm not sure how to do it, right? Uh, but that's a command we have, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, make disciples. It's not even just sharing the gospel. It's also discipling people, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. This is a hard command. How do we live it out? What's the promise to believe? Well, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If I'm really trusting that Jesus is with me, you don't have to worry about my own sufficiency. Like, he's going to work in that situation. I really just have to show up and be willing to share. All right, third, sacrifice in your marriage. That's a difficult command coming from the king, isn't it? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's a hard command. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, you have to give your life up for your wife, uh, for your wives, and like Christ did the church. He laid down his life for the church. These are hard commands to do. So what's the promise? In Ephesians 5, it says that Christ sanctifies us, cleansing us, with the word, so he might present us to himself in splendor. So the promise is that, you know what, Christ is with us and he's sanctifying us. He's helping us to grow, to become more and more like him. He will help us when it comes to laying down our lives for our spouses. And he will do it with, with his word. And I gave a couple more um, forgiveness. Colossians 3 is a command to forgive one another. And the promise is, follows it as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You know, when we're thinking about God's promise of forgiveness towards us, that enables us to go and then forgive others. How about this one? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. That's a tough command. James for chapter 1, verse 2. The way we approach trials and suffering and hardship is to count it joy. Man, that's a, that's a difficult command. But here's the promise. James 1, 3-4, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God will use the trials to help you to grow spiritually, to become strong in your inner person, and to become more like Jesus, so that you will become perfect, meaning mature and complete, lacking in nothing. When you believe that, you can face those trials with a degree of joy. So what does it mean 
to surrender to Jesus as king. He is our authority. He is um, the one who makes the decisions in our lives. He is the one to whom we submit to and we seek to follow his commands. And when the way that we do that is to understand his command, why his way is best, and also to believe his promises that enable us to obey those commands. And you know what? As we surrender to Jesus as king in each area of our lives, he blesses that. He really does. I mean, he's always working for our best interest, what is, what is best for us, and that brings glory to him. So here's the question. What area of your life, I mean, how do you surrender your life to Jesus? I'll tell you, you do it one thing at a time. One thing at a time. God isn't wanting you to be perfect tomorrow. One thing at a time. So what is the next thing for you? What's the next thing to lay down at Jesus' feet and say, I surrender this to you. I've been carrying this. I've been trying to do this my own way. Whether it's a relationship or your kids or how you're handling your money or job or what is it for you that is that next thing to lay down and surrender at the feet of Jesus and allow him to be king over? I encourage you to pray about that a little bit and then do it to the praise of the glory of his name. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon.